What of our traumas? What may God? That's a, that's a striking, striking couplet of words, isn't it? May God. What may God do through our trauma? Is it beyond the scope of his sovereignty to be used to accomplish his good ends? What of our trauma? What of our difficulty? There are certain ministries that God brings about that could come about exclusively through our trauma and our difficulty. As a church, we've endeavored to move book by book through the Bible. Our curriculum took a break from Genesis last week in honor of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and now we return to the book of Genesis. And I'm preaching on a chapter that is between the two chapters that the curriculum covers. So the small group covers chapter 33. We're going to look at chapter 34. And then next week's lesson looks at chapter 35. Would you open to Genesis 34 with me? And be warned as you do. This is a story of rape. So what, what should I do, Highlands Community Church? Should I skip this difficult chapter? Or shall we read the word of God in its entirety? Read the word. Amen. Let's go to Genesis 34. Let's go to Genesis 34. I think it's important. And I think I, think I see the evidence of God's sovereignty in, in all of this. That sanctity of human life Sunday would be last weekend. And there aren't very many churches that speak as pointedly and directly against abortion the way that our church did last weekend. And there are fewer churches that would then immediately, the very next weekend, call out sexual assault and call out rape. That's what the Word of God is going to do. In Genesis 34, as a word of context to catch you up, the last time we saw our hero Jacob the previous episode of the book of Genesis. <laughs> Jacob was about to see his twin brother Esau again. And the last time they had seen each other, it had been about 20 years. And the last time they were together, Esau had committed that he was going to kill his brother Jacob. So Jacob is terrified. He is utterly petrified to see Esau again. And he, he has accrued a huge, huge following and tons of livestock all while he was serving Laban, who, who would lead him dishonestly. But even in the midst of Laban's trickery, God's sovereignty held sway, and God's promised blessing upon Abraham, upon Isaac, and now upon Jacob came to fruition in beautiful ways. And so Jacob now has tremendous flocks and herds of animals, and, and, and he's growing. God's promise over Abraham is be, beginning to be fulfilled, but God is not remotely finished yet. So Jacob, terrified of his twin brother Esau, sends ahead of him these huge numbers of, of people and of, and of livestock. And it's pretty remarkable. When you take an inventory of the total number of animals that are sent parading towards Esau, like it rivals Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade in its scope. And the logistics are so impressive. Like they're organized according to species and they're even spaced out in between them. And he has everybody memorize this, this, this apology, 
this preemptive apology to tell, to tell Esau something like, listen, Esau, Jacob, sorry, please don't kill us all. Okay, bye. Okay, say it back to me. Let me hear it. All right, that's, there you go. Say your lines or he's going to kill all of you. And then, and then the, the text says that he had everybody like bow seven times. And, and that means that there was likely some, because there's choreography, there's likely some rehearsal. And that's hilarious to me. Because I can't help but picture it happening in my head. Jacob, does everybody line up? Okay, everybody line up. Let's practice our bowing. Okay, feet shoulder width apart. Bow seven times or Esau's going to kill every last man, woman, child, and puppy. Okay, down. Back up. None of this knee bending bowing. Matthias, I saw that. Down. What are you doing? What? What? Stop. Cut. Matthias. The thriller won't even be invented for several more centuries. Why are you dancing? This is not your moment. Get back in line. We're all going to die. Here we go. And down. And up. And down. Who gave Matthias a ribbon dancer? Esau is going to murder every last one of us. And so Jacob is utterly convinced that they're all going to die. Parades everybody, has them apologize, has them bow seven times, but it all turns out to be for naught. Because when he and Esau actually see each other, Esau says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. And there's this beautiful, peaceable reconciliation between the brothers. But God sovereignly worked through the fear with which Jacob was stricken the night before. Because he wrestled with Jacob directly and proclaimed there that he would be renamed Israel. The same proclamation that's going to be fulfilled later in the text as we study the book of Genesis. So right after the meeting with Esau comes this text. Here are the closing verses of chapter 33 to give us context on a running start. 33.18 reads, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paden Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So here's Jacob, now in a new city called Shechem. The prince of the city of Shechem is named Shechem. So you can imagine what kind of sense of entitlement we're dealing with when we meet Shechem, who's next in line to become the king of Shechem. Dinah is one of Jacob's children, the only daughter who's named. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Asher, Gad, Issachar, Zebulun, there's Dinah, and Joseph, and Benjamin. Dinah is one of the children of Leah. So Simeon and Levi and Dinah are all children of Leah, whom Jacob, by the way, didn't really want to marry in the first place. And he demonstrates coldness towards her. And even her children in this text. I mean, when something happens to Joseph, one of Rachel's sons, he is... He is utterly distraught, but when something happens to Dinah in this text, he is too late to speak. Dinah has an interesting perspective on all of this. 
Abraham called, Abraham was called by God out of this land, and now Jacob and others are going back towards this same land, back into Canaan. And so Dinah has the chance to see the world and meet entirely new people groups. That's exactly what she does in this text. She goes out to get to know some of the women of this city of Shechem, where her father has just purchased for 100 pieces of some sort, some sort of legal tender a spot for them to set up camp. And she goes in perhaps to just befriend some of the women of this town or just to get away from all the dudes that she lives among all the time. Here, as they travel through Shechem, they've arrived smack in the middle of the territory upon which God biblically will decree that his wrath is to be poured out. Have you ever heard these critiques of the Bible? In which, like in Joshua chapter 11, the Israelite army is told by God to go in and just wipe everyone out and leave no survivors. And that's held as a critique against the Bible. Why would, why would a loving God do that? How could God do that? Well, you're going to see that this is one such place. Shechem is one of the cities that's in the land of Canaan upon which God has decreed his wrath. Leviticus 18 chronicles some of the debaucheries that pervaded the land of Canaan for which God decreed that his wrath would be poured out. And for 400 years, God's declaration of wrath remained there in suspense before the actual outpouring of the wrath took place in Joshua chapter 11. When we zoom only to Joshua chapter 11 and the outpouring of God's wrath, to the neglect of the reason behind God's wrath, we completely misunderstand God. This is partly why. This is one glimpse. This is one anecdote amidst a tome of atrocities for which God pours out his wrath on the land of Canaan, simultaneously pouring his wrath out on evil and also fulfilling his promise to his people to give them this land of Canaan, literally the promised land. So here is Dinah stepping out to meet some of the women of the city of Shechem, and whom should she encounter but Shechem himself? Here's Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl from my wife. Let's pause. This is horrific. This is horrific. This is terrible. This is absolutely terrible. This is a grave injustice that's been done. And it's here in the Bible. It's a true story. I mean, where, where is God in this? Where is God in verse 4? How could a loving God allow something like this to happen to Dinah? She wasn't doing anything wrong. As a church that has endeavored to move book by book through the Bible, we will go through every passage, not just the passages that make for spectacular, thrilling, and rhetorically soaring sermons. Do you hear me? Proclaim what the Word of God says. Statistically speaking, at a church of our size, roughly 2,000 total, there must be dinas in our midst. There must be Shechem's in our midst. Otherwise, we are quite the statistical anomaly. 
to the Shechem's. Watch. Watch what God does. You may have committed this act. One of the most personal ways that you could ever defile someone, one of the most intimate, despicable crimes you can commit against another person. And if you're like Shechem, you feel like you've gotten away with it as of verse 4, but just wait. Just watch. The justice of God does not sleep. Watch. Your only hope, Shechem, is to plead out for mercy to God, give your life to Jesus, and turn yourself in to the law today. I'll stand with you in the lobby while you call the cops on yourself. Repent, Shechem. Now, those of us who have never committed an act of sexual assault or rape or anything like that, we can't check out. This is not a time to get a new Angry Birds high score. Just because you're not guilty of the same sin doesn't mean that you have not committed a, committed a similar sin in your heart. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 28? You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if anyone has even looked at a woman lustfully in his heart, he's already committed adultery. So don't be too condescending towards Shechem if you have lust in your heart. Man and woman alike, we all, we all might fall to such depraved levels as Shechem's. Shechem is the result of generational depravity, one compromise at a time, one tiny step at a time unto the sinful darkness until he's in a dead-on sprint down the slippery slope and utterly lacks self-awareness. And is at this point culturally where Isaiah says, woe to you who call good evil and evil good. Have you watched the news this week? Our culture is in such a place. And we didn't arrive there overnight. Shechem didn't become Shechem overnight. Watch your heart. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Do not be too condescending to Shechem because though you may not have acted out in such severity, your heart is prone to such darkness. Do not compromise with evil because when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Look at the utter delusional nature of Shechem too. It says that his soul was drawn towards Dinah. This is the second time we've seen this Hebrew word used. The first time we, we see it used in Genesis, it's Genesis 2.24, to describe the way in which a man would leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That's the same Hebrew word that's used here. Shechem has raped Dinah, and now he feels like he loves her. He is deluded. His sinful heart is darkened. The way of his thinking is foolish. Claiming to be wise, he has become a fool. And then look at the sense of entitlement of this lustful little prince. Go and get me that girl and bring her to me to be my wife. What delusion. What lust. What pride. And he feels so perfectly safe. And he continues to feel safe for the first 23 verses of this chapter. But just wait. Just watch. The wrath and justice of God will come upon him. Okay, Dinah's in the room. Your Shechem may have gotten off scotch-free and may have remained undiscovered and unknown up until this point, but God saw what happened, and he is the God of justice who will do what is right. Watch what happens in this text. 
Watch what happens in this text. Now, Shechem has just defiled Dinah, and the word has reached Jacob. If you are the father of someone who's been sexually assaulted and you haven't spoken up, I want you to watch how Jacob reaps the whirlwind. At the very end of this chapter, he cries out in angst when he should have spoken up here. Look what happens in verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the son of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. I have heard a common argument in the narrative that says the Bible justifies rape. That is a satanic lie. I'm going to read that verse one more time. Here's how God feels about rape. Such a thing must not be done. Good verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. That's a poor choice of words. Just so we're clear, this is Shechem, the one who just raped Dinah, is now speaking to Dinah's father and brothers. Let me find favor in your eyes. Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. What gall! What utter gall and delusion that he believes he is entitled to fair and good, kind treatment from them after he has sinned gravely against them. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. The number one reason that people give for leaving their Christian faith behind is that they've suffered difficulty and trial and affliction. And they were under the impression that giving their lives to Jesus absolved them from this. That's the number one, statistically, the number one reason that people give for leaving their Christian faith behind is that they face difficulty, they face trial. Where was God in my trial? Where was God in, my, in the midst of my affliction? Why didn't God deliver me? I'm entitled to good treatment, even though I have sin. Do you see the parallels between that line of thinking and exactly what Shechem just did? I know that I've just done something defiling, but look upon me favorably. I know that I've just sinned against you, but be kind to me now. Do you see this? Listen, if, if you have this, this lens through which you view the world, and on that lens is written, I'm entitled to good things, that worldview will mess you up. If you believe that you are entitled only to good things, only to nice experiences, that you deserve only goodness, that will mess you up, especially when you take that lens and you point it towards God and you look at God through that lens as though God owes you only good things. Think on it for a moment. Think on it for a moment. Even if you're dying, even if you're the victim here, we're still sinners. Who are we to look to the holy God of the universe and say, you owe me only good things? 
How did we as sinners get to be in such a position of power? The, the holy, righteous, sinless judge of the universe would owe us anything. Okay, here's the truth. I, Jesse Austin Campbell, am a wretched sinner. Did you know that the lead pastor of this church is a wretched sinner? I, as a sinner, what I deserve, what I'm entitled to, is hell for my sin. That's what I deserve. But because of the blood of Jesus, because of the mercy and the grace of God, what I will get the day that I die is eternity in heaven. Simply because of the grace of Jesus, I deserve hell. I'm receiving heaven. So come what may in the meantime, I'm already, I'm already blessed beyond what I deserve. No matter the afflictions and the trial and the pain that I suffer in this life, I don't deserve what I get from God and I don't get from God what I deserve. Thank God for that. Because what I deserve for my sin is eternity in hell. That would be fair treatment. But instead, the gospel is a story of grace and forgiveness and mercy upon sinners like me, upon sinners like you. If you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what we actually deserve from God. Because of our sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of that sin that we all have is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Is it entirely possible that you've been looking at your, tri your trials and afflictions through a flawed lens? With a sense of entitlement. As though you didn't deserve them and you only deserve good things. Is it possible that you don't really know God? And your whole view of this thing has been wrong. Consider now the huge gap that exists between your depravity and his holiness. What you deserve versus what he offers. And then your trials, your difficulties, and your pain will fall into a completely different perspective. No matter what afflictions befall you in this life. With eternity on the heavenly horizon... With an eternity with Jesus, an eternity forgiven, an eternity in the arms of God, it utterly eclipses all the darkness of this present life. Thank God we don't get what we deserve because of the gospel. So Shechem, I've got to be honest, if we're totally real, we, see, we may see our reflections in Shechem knowing full well that he's done something sinful and going before Jacob and others and asking for good treatment. Sometimes we do the exact same thing to God. I know that I've sinned, but I'm going to go before you and ask you for good treatment. Now, thank God, God is merciful and more merciful than Jacob and his sons. Consider what comes next. The, son, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. He said, they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and, and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. 
Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the city gate of their people and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the city gate out of the gate of the city, listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. If I were a male constituent of the city of Shechem, I would be furious. Shechem has to be the greatest politician in history. I mean, how did this go down? Imagine that, like, imagine being average Joe resident of Shechem. I have to do what? Because Shechem did what? Just move, man. <laughs> Just move. But man, think about this. Imagine the way that the pitch went down when the sons of Jacob were telling Shechem, oh yeah, man, we, we've all done it. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, everybody does it. Everybody, that's an Israelite thing. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Leaving out the fact that they were all eight days old when they were circumcised. <laughs> this is, I gotta be totally honest with you. Like, I'm so mad at Shechem, but there's a little part of me that's like, yes. <laughs> because not only, not only is justice served, but in a way, it goes beyond. All right, they go, they over, they not only kill every man in the city, but they circumcise them first. It is so twisted, it's a little bit brilliant. So in my flesh, in my flesh, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but here's the truth. What's about to take place was never dictated by God. It's not written in the Torah. And what they described about circumcision was an outright lie, as the Genesis account describes. So look at verse 25. On the third day... When they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, and all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So this... This is an over-retaliation. I mean, a mass slaughter of an entire city's men and a plundering on top of that out of response to a rape. Mass slaughter in response to this. They went way overkill. But here is the larger contextual picture of what's happening here. 
The city of Shechem was in the crosshairs of God's coming wrath anyway. This would have been on the list of cities that is, that is routed by Joshua and his army in the coming years, in the coming books of the Bible. Because they practiced such practices as these, and according to the text, Shechem himself was the most honorable man in the city. Think about that. The most honorable man, the most respected and esteemed and officially high-ranking man in the whole city, the prince of the city himself, was a rapist. What does this say about the rest of the inhabitants? Does this put God's wrath being poured out on Canaan into perspective? We could see what practices pervaded all over the land of Canaan. God used even this to pour out his justice upon the people of Canaan. Even this, even this was used of God to pour out his wrath and have his will done. This is, this is scripturally true. This is, this is something we're going to sing about today. Romans 8, 28. It says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, does, does your Bible say that all things are good? No. It does not say that all things are good. It says that God, God, work all things together for good. Even the bad things, even tragedy, even defiling, even the most difficult things in our lives, all of these may be substance of the greatest ministries that God accomplishes through our lives. Dinah's story is a part of a bigger story. And poor Dinah, nobody spoke up on her behalf. And the only time Jacob even says a word is at the end when his reputation is in danger now. And even that, God was using that in the midst of it. This is, this is, the, this is quite a first impression to make on the land of Canaan. Now, God's heart was for Dinah. He was with her in the midst of all of it. And I want to speak to the Dinahs in the room right now. Do you see this? Do you see this? Even, even when justice does not prevail, and even when man's fallen system of justice does not prevail, God is sovereign and God is at work. Okay, I'm not a licensed therapist. I have no degrees in psychology. I'm a preacher of the word of God, and that's what I have to share with you. And so I'll share that with you. Would you fix your heart upon the gospel of Jesus Christ? And set your hope that is in heaven and heaven alone. Because there's coming a day when he will make everything that is wrong right forevermore. He will wipe every tear from your eyes. And the old order of things will pass away. And the dwelling of God will be with men. And his very direct presence itself will be the very source of light in which we abide. He promises in Psalm 34, 17 through 22. Though the righteous may have many troubles, the Lord delivers them from them all. He is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous one may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Not one of his bones will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked, and the foes of the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. So Dinah, take refuge in God. Fix your heart upon heaven where nothing can take away your peace. Nothing can ever take away God's sense of justice. That's where my hope lies. That's why I hope your hope lies as well. And the justice of God in eternity future. Shechem, repent today and be saved. Turn yourself into the law.
Throw yourself upon the mercy of God because even Shechem, even such sins as these are not beyond the capacity of God's grace to redeem and restore and forgive forevermore. Give your life to Jesus. I have some incredible news. Last weekend, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, so we preached from Matthew 18 and talked about God's heart for life itself, for his children from conception through natural death and every minute in between. There was an abortionist present in our services. She was convicted by the Holy Spirit of God and she came to tell me during the week she was not contractually obligated to perform abortions and she has told her supervisor that she will never again perform the procedure. This means that 10 babies a week, 520 babies a year have been saved. Praise God. Praise God. Even in the midst of difficulty and dark affliction, God is at work and God can redeem absolutely anything. Did you know that? Your pain and your affliction and your trial and your wounds are not beyond the power and the sovereignty of God to be used according to his will. So whether you identify most closely with Dinah, with Jacob, with Shechem himself, will you go before the Lord? And if the Lord is drawing upon your heart to give your life to him, if you've seen the powerful ways in which God takes sin very seriously, and you find yourself guilty of sin as well, perhaps not these sins, but other sins, would you give your life to Jesus right here and now and abide in the bringer of eternal justice forevermore? If the Holy Spirit of God is drawing upon your heart right now, your only hope is this, Jesus. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you, my fellow sinner, will be saved. So as God draws on your heart, go to Jesus, fix your heart on heaven, be forgiven and washed and cleansed and justified for every last one of your sins. Be forgiven and be saved and be redeemed. Give your life to Jesus. Pray with me now, God, I am a sinner and you take sin seriously. I am no better than the sinners in this story. God, would you forgive me my sins? I believe that Jesus is your son, God. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So here and now I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now let me be saved, let me be saved, let me be saved, Jesus. Jesus' name we pray.